Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. I'm Mike Bowden-Distel. I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at Freight Waves. Work primarily on the data side, on intermodal uh, data. And I'm here joined as always by my colleague, Joanna Marsh, who does the editorial writing at uh, Freight Waves on the rail industry. Uh, Joanna, what are you uh, working on these days? I know you've seen you, uh, you know, publish a lot of reports about earnings uh, season and so forth, but, but uh, what else is going on? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think the, the Class 1 railroads just kind of wrapped up their earnings season. There's still um, some rail companies that still have to post um, results, like Trinity Industries, for instance. But um, yeah, there's that. There's, there's, uh, there's news coming out of California and the California Air Resources Board um, looking at whether to phase out diesel locomotives and, and phase in zero emissions locomotives. And so we'll see how that goes. They're supposedly supposed to talk about it today. I'm not sure if it's going to be done today or if it, or, you know, vote on it today or if it's going to extend to tomorrow as well. So there's that. And then the Federal Railroad Administration just issued a safety advisory on train lengths um, to uh, just kind of telling the railroads to uh, to, to be mindful of, of how they, um, when they configure trains, uh, you know, thinking about the length as well because of the in-train forces that happen with, that could happen with, with train lengths, longer trains. That could cause the rail cars to decouple essentially because the, the in-train Forces, is that, yeah, is that they, the issue they're blocking, they, they're blocking they, rail, rail crossings or, or more likely to derail? Yeah, I think they, they did for multiple reasons. I, I think part of it is is sort of, yeah, the, the derailment issue and 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 whether it, whether it does or doesn't sort of split the, the, the train apart um, in terms of the decoupling. And then part of it, I think, is also the rail crossings issue. There's been some um, Reports in sort of the mainstream uh, outlets about you know uh, blocked crossings and how that uh, mm -hmm. how that affects the local residents. Um, of course, that's an ongoing issue. So we'll see. Well, great. So uh, encourage everyone to go check out those stories on FreightWaves.com. You can always go at the top to uh, sectors and just look at the rail uh, road coverage. You'll get all of Joanna's articles in addition to some of the other articles that are written that pertain to the rail industry. Uh, and with that, as just a brief intro, I want to really um, you know save most of the time for our guests today. Have Ian Jeffries, who is the president and CEO of the Association of American Railroads, uh, the AAR is an organization that um, works to ensure the long-term viability of the railroad industry, really working on behalf of the Class 1 railroads. Ian, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, always great to have your perspective, uh, sort of the perspective of the, the railroad industry. And I guess I just want to start with uh, you know, labor has really been a, a, a big issue. Um, I was just listening to the, the Norfolk Southern analyst call and they said, you know, one third of their locations, they don't have the, the labor that's yet at targeted levels. It's really been kind of an issue um, that's been intensified you know, during the pandemic, you know, during other uh, times, um, the railroads are pretty able to sort of scale their resources with with volume, had a little bit hard time getting people you know, back to the job um, during the pandemic. Can you Give some you know, sort of perspective, um, you know, on that sort of why was it more difficult this time? What do you think the railroads um, you have to do to make the, the the job maybe more enticing to uh, you know a younger um, you know younger uh, group? Sure, that's a great question and one we could probably spend the entire uh, episode talking about. But um, yeah, I think you really need to go back to uh, twenty twenty and the, the the throes of the pandemic and railroads have a long history of, um, you know, during during traffic, uh, during volume declines. Uh, we saw a fairly dramatic one in the spring of 2020 
of uh, temporary furloughing workers when the, the work isn't there, um, and then calling them back uh, when, the, when the volumes return. That's a process that had worked for, for decades upon decades. And frankly, that, that process broke down. And the process that railroads had relied on, um, it, 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 didn't, it didn't perform as it has historically. I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pulling these numbers, but uh, historically upwards 80, 90% of folks uh, uh, who were furloughed when recalled came back to the job. And I think that number was cut in half um, in certain situations. And so uh, volumes came back pretty strong, probably stronger um, than, than most folks had forecasted. And railroads uh, got caught in a game of catch up. Um, as you know, um, we can't just hire somebody and have them out on the railroad the next day. It takes significant amounts of training, uh, which takes significant amounts of time before folks are ready to be out on the road. And so, um, We've been uh, industry-wide at a pretty aggressive hiring clip um, since probably 2021, and uh, the numbers, top-line headcount is is up uh, a pretty decent amount. I think we're up about 10% uh, from where we were January 22, got the most employees we've had since uh, uh, the beginning of 2020, so a lot of progress has been made on that front, but um, to, to your point and to the comments, I think that were made um, around uh, one of the earnings calls. Uh, there's certainly pockets that uh, remain significantly challenging um, throughout the network. Certain areas uh, fully sourced, um, other areas remain a challenge. And um, you hit on the the notion that, uh, you know, how do these roles need to evolve? Um, certainly today's railroad is not yesterday's railroad and today's workforce is not yesterday's workforce, um, especially in the pandemic. I think um, every industry probably saw uh, an evolution of employee values, employee desires. And one thing that um, we learned uh, uh, very significantly, very starkly uh, in our, our labor negotiations is that there's a, there's a premium on trying to strike that, that right uh, work-life balance, uh, increased quality of life, um, ability to uh, have more predictable schedules. And that's something that we're working very hard on. And um, in fact, something that the, the last fall's collective bargaining agreement actually had specific direction that on a railroad by railroad level um, with our operating crafts, our, our engineers and our conductors that, uh, that the railroad sit down with those crafts and, and create a more uh, scheduled work cadence that uh, frankly is good for the employee. If you have a more predictable work schedule, you can design the rest of your life uh, uh, much better, but also it's better for the railroad to have a more predictable pool of available employees on any given day. Um, so that, that's ongoing. And uh, hiring continues in the meantime, but we're, we're not uh, in, in all pockets where we want to be. So uh, the work continues there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, th I think, um, you know, all those things, um, you know, with work-life balance, pre you know, predictable hours, those type of things would, would, make, a big, would make a big difference. Um, you know, how do you think about sort of the balance between uh, the railroads, sort of profitability levels, return on investment versus the, the demands on service? Um, you mm -hmm. know, the this, this service has come under fire um, in, in recent years, you know, the Foster Farm situation, the U Union Pacific embargo situation. Um, does there need to be sort of a different, maybe less variable cost structure um, to, to have more resources in place for when volumes uh, surge? Well, I think you're always going to see an effort in every industry, including railroads, to to make sure you're you're making the best use of your assets, you're controlling costs uh, uh, to the best you, uh, extent you can. But what we have seen, um, and call it applying lessons learned, um, 
is that several of our, 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 our leaders, several of our CEOs across the rail industry have been very clear about the fact that um, they're not going to necessarily rely on the, the, the old, uh, old paradigm of, uh, you know, temporary furloughs and, and calling folks back quite as, quite as much as maybe as, uh, as they used to. And uh, folks are going to look at uh, temporary downturns in, in volumes and demand for, as opportunities to, to retrain or to train conductors to be engineers or um, really, really try to keep that, that more resilient workforce uh, uh, ready availability there. Because again, we saw when, when you, you get caught short uh, on headcount and you have demand, you can't just flip a switch and, and put more people out on the network. It takes a lot of time. There's lag time there. And so um, I'm certainly uh, pleased to see that uh, our our leadership in our industry is is making a point of emphasizing that fact uh, that whether it be in uh, public speeches, conferences, earnings calls, et cetera, that um, you know there's there, there's going to be I think a desire to to keep more of a, a resilient level of workforce there and and uh, maybe not uh, necessarily look to furlough if there's a temporary downtick. Um, you know everyone's going to manage their network to the best of their ability and based on the characteristics of of an individual railroads network. And of course that could be different for each railroad, but um, that's a pretty consistent theme you're hearing uh, across uh, the first quarter from our, from our leadership. That's, that's good. Yeah, that I've, help I've, with I've heard of that as well, well. like during the earnings calls about, um, about uh, if there is a market downturn, kind of, you know, focusing on, on the training with the, um, with the conductors and, and others and sort of seeing whether career opportunities are, are out there. Um, I guess kind of looking at a little further uh, on that reprioritization question. Um, so you have sort of that that transitioning idea about you know furloughs and 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 looking at um, employee training um, in in terms of like market downturn. What about like uh, you know do you think that the industry is in a prior is in a um, is a period of reprioritization away from improving operating ratio and towards service and volume growth and or I guess another way to put that um, is the uh, PSR era over or um, are we in PSR you know 2.0 as like Tony Hatch might say um, where do right. you think uh, the railroads kind of stand with that thing well well as you all know probably better than a lot of folks that term is thrown around uh, pretty liberally. And uh, each railroad has its own unique operating plan, of course, and it's going to operate based on its customer base, its physical network, et cetera. But um, again, building up on the the, the themes that we're, we've heard from our industry's leadership uh, over the past four or five months, um, there's been dramatic emphasis on on top line growth, on service, on getting service to new heights and, and really uh, growing that market share. There's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, even during some uncertain economic conditions, uh, the, the investments are being made, uh, the work's being done to uh, not only grab, uh, grab share right now, but really uh, be ready um, you know, as, as the economy gets rolling back into full force, hopefully sooner than later. You know, our, our industry and our, our, our railroads are doing their best, I think, to work with customers to forecast what the expected demands might be. Um, that's a bit of a a cloudy process, uh, even even at the best of times, and so um, kind of expecting uncertainty is probably uh, a bit of the new model out there. But um, service, top line growth, adding uh, adding cars to uh, to the volumes, and uh, competing vigorously um, to 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 make our product more attractive, especially on that intermodal uh, in that intermodal market that's so dynamic. 
Yeah, on, on that point, um, you know, we do hear a lot about, you know, intermodal trying to gain share, you know, lots of investments are being made, just saw the partnership between Canadian Pacific and was it Schneider. Um, lots of things like that are pretty interesting, you know, JB Hunt um, with partnership with BN, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sort of look at the past, the past few years, intermodal really hasn't gained share from, from, from truckload. I mean, we always sort of look back after a period of, of, of tightness in truckload and say, well, the railroad should have gained share and it was this opportunity you know, missed, um, you, know, you know, what sort of prevented that, that share gain from, from taking place the last few years, including the, the tightness that we saw in, let's say, 2021 in the truckload industry? Well, I think, you know, part of it is it's such an integrated network when it comes to intermodal. And so when what we saw so clearly, uh, I believe really fall of 21, where you had unprecedented volumes coming out of the West Coast ports, um, you know, trains were, were, were getting goods into the middle of the country, uh, Chicago Hub, for example, and um, uh, our, our yards started getting backed up because um, the you know lack of drage, lack of chassis, lack of warehouse space to take uh, the products to, and so the system kind of backed up on itself. And um, there's a lot of progress that's been made there. I think uh, really creating a, an increased level of visibility through the supply chain is going to help. Um, but at the end of the day, we're going to win share when we provide. Uh, hyper predictable, reliable service it doesn't necessarily have to be the fastest service. Um, I think, but it has to be extremely reliable, uh, extremely predictable, and uh, transparent. In that, you know, the the world, the customer base, you and I, we've all grown accustomed to knowing exactly where our orders are and where things we're buying are in the the supply chain on any given time. Um, shoot, you order a, a delivery pizza, you see when the pepperoni goes on it of all things. So mm-hmm. um, I think there's there's a, a, an expectation of increased visibility into shipments. And the more progress we make on that front, the more attractive uh, our product will be. And um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a multi-pronged approach there. But the opportunities are there. And I think we're, we're working to be ready to, to take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, maybe during um, volume downturns, railers could train, let's say, conductors to be engineers. I mean, that sort of leads to the other sort of question on top of people's mind, I think, is is that issue of two-person crews versus one-person crews versus, I don't know, maybe zero-person crews if the safety measures are really in place, you know, long, longer term. Um, so sort of what are your thoughts there? I mean, I, I guess, does the AAR, um, you know, believe that it's more efficient to have just a locomotive engineer in the cab and the conductor on the ground. And would that detract from, from safety at all in your view? Right. So first of all, you know, I I think we try to avoid using the term, you know, two person crew or one person crew. Um, What we're really talking about is where um, crew members are physically located and whether or not uh, it's appropriate to um, in some cases to, to redeploy, a conductor from inside the cab of a locomotive to um, to along the uh, um, along the right of ways uh, prepositioned stationed along the right of way and certainly um, there there are positives there in certain situations we talked about the quality of life uh, desires from the workforce and um, if you you have a situation where you have a utility conductor who covers a certain uh, territory on the network um, has set hours is doing that Monday through Friday, eight to five, it's shift work, it's predictable, you know, when you're going to work, you know, when you're going to be home. I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, desirable um, advantages there. But what we're really focused on, I think this is a much bigger picture, is locking in current operating practice in perpetuity. And whether or not that's who, how many folks are located in the cab of a locomotive, whether that's uh, how we do certain types of inspections, 
in our opinion, um, legislation and regulation really needs to be um, focused on how we can evolve into the future. And permanently locking in current operating practice doesn't really allow that uh, ability to innovate, to evolve, to develop new, um, better ways to do things. And so that's where we uh, get pretty concerned. But um, when it comes to, to, to crew deployment and, and potential redeployment, that's always been a matter for collective bargaining between railroads and their unions. Um, it's worked well over the years. It is a, it is a, a slow evolutionary process. Um, when you look at data, safety has only improved over, over the decades that we, we've redeployed various uh, crew members. And um, so our railroads will continue to have those discussions if they deem appropriate with their unions about, about crew deployment and potential redeployment. Um, but where we do get hung up is, you know, really locking in current operating practice in the, the regulatory or legislative space. We don't think that's appropriate. We don't think that's uh, promoting innovation. Uh, we don't think it's promoting technology, which will really result in advances in safety, advances in efficiency, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and actually to, to follow up on that, um, you know, you, the, there have been, as you can see with the uh, data in the Federal Railroad Administration, uh, decline in, in railroad der- derailments over the last decade, and I think maybe even over the last 20 years. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, the goal is zero derailments, but, um, but you know, for the time being, you know, what, what can be kind of done to, um, to, to make railroads safer and, and to reduce derailments? So you mentioned the technology issue, but what, I guess what, what other options are there? Sure. Again, a question we could probably spend uh, the entire conversation on, but um, you made some good points on on safety trends. So if we look at 2022 using FRA data, um, we had several record safety metrics uh, in 2022. They weren't all records, so um, you know we're not where we need to be. But when it comes to mainline track uh, derailments, all-time record low. Um, we have about the Class One railroads have about 900. 2022 had 916 derailments across the entire industry. Only 24% of those occurred out on the main line, so out on the, the roads themselves. The, the vast majority, about 75%, occur within within yards. Um, uh, call it, you know, more minor incidents. So, um, you know, there are different causes for different incidents. Um, 2022, we had the lowest employee injury rate in our history. Uh, but again, to your point, we're not at zero, um, and our goal should be new record, uh, um, new safety records every single year. So we've got to keep evolving how we do things. What are the opportunities? The opportunities are really pushing out deployment of track inspection technology using uh, using new tools, using using autonomous track inspection, for example, um, which allows for a much more in-depth, um, sophisticated uh, inspection of a track, kind of a 360 holistic uh, picture of a track um, using a tool that can be attached to a locomotive, can be its own car, but allows us to really cover vastly more um, miles of track and vastly more frequently than than having an individual walk the track. And using those tools, we can pinpoint where there might be an anomaly in the track, and then the employee can can be the person who goes in and really uh, gets into that and and does the does the repair work. And so. Um, it's using tools like that that, again, will result in more track being inspected and more frequently at a higher level of sensitivity. Um, there are other opportunities out there as well, whether it's using new types of materials, whether it's using um, new types of wayside detection. Um, it's got to be an all of the above strategy, and some things are going to bear fruit, others aren't. But that's why we need to, to be able to work uh, in our space and work collaboratively with our regulator 
to, to, to be in the lab and looking for new, better ways to do things and understanding that not everything's going to have the leap forward we're looking for, but some might, and we should be able to deploy pilot programs to, to build those data sets to really take a look at what works and what doesn't. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, you bring up a good, I mean, your point's well taken that you don't want to lock current procedures in place because that would stifle a lot of this innovation. A lot of the innovation would lead to a safer railroad because you can find exceptions and things um, and mm-hmm. correct those before they become bigger problems. So um, you know, I think that point is, is very well taken. Um, also wanted to ask you about um, the Surface Transportation Board. I mean, now that they have approved the CPKC deal, I'm sure that was taking up most of their time. Um, maybe they have time to look at some of these other things that they've kind of outlined, outlined kind of this, this laundry list of things, reciprocal switching, redefining the carrier mm-hmm. common, common, common carrier obligation, streamlining procedure for small shippers and condensed rate cases. I'm sure there's others I'm missing, but um, you know, any of that, that you would sort of really highlight as ones that you would say tread cautiously on because, right. uh, you know, for one reason or another? Well, I think that's generally our theme with all things the STB looks at is tread with caution um, because these are big consequence uh, issues that uh, the board's looking at. But all kidding aside, you know, th- this board is very engaged, probably the most active any STB's ever been. Um, but it's also been an unprecedented time over the past few years with the pandemic and and other related issues and other supply chain challenges uh, we've dealt with. Um, so as as the board looks at these issues, I think we're focused on a few different things. Um, the chair's made clear he wants to uh, focus on on switching. Uh, we call it forced access. But um, and he uh, he's you know held a hearing last spring, two day hearing on this and. If you if you if you watched and listened to really what the focus of a lot of the questions were was, you know, are there opportunities to use switching as a service remedy? If if one railroad is having service challenges or or not performing at a level customer deserves and expects, is there is there a way the board can order a switch to a to a competing railroad who might be able to provide a better level level of service? Um, you know, there might be an argument to be made there. Uh, our our view is let's let's proceed with caution. Let's proceed deliberately and let's make sure we are addressing uh, real real issues out there. And, um, you know, if it's about rate regulation, the board has multiple other tools, multiple other avenues here. Um, but if it's about service, maybe there's something there. The devil's always going to be in the details. Um, but the chair has made clear this is something he wants to deal with. Certainly, I give him a lot of credit because he has uh, worked very hard to, to drive consensus at the board. And that's a challenge because you've got five very sharp, very uh, uh, um, um, diverse viewed individuals. And so I think he deserves credit for his effort in in bringing people together. And so um, I know that'll be a focus. And uh, that's why, frankly, I was uh, surprised that there was a split vote on uh, some of the smaller rate case stuff, the final offer rate review uh, uh, a program that the the board uh, through a split vote is trying to set up. We've got pretty significant concerns about that, really, in that the the board doesn't have statutory statutory authority to to set up a baseball style arbitration. Their job is to determine what the maximum reasonable rate is, and the way this program as proposed is set up, it kind of 
uh, they, they, they abscond themselves from their responsibility of doing that. Um, that's going to be litigated and we'll, we'll see where that goes. Not to say there aren't opportunities to improve a, a small rate case process. There certainly are. Um, this may not have been the right path though, but you know, more to come on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. appreciate your uh, perspective on that, on all those things. Um, yeah, have about a minute left. Uh, maybe just any thoughts on, um, you know, how the CPKC deal might change the, the sort of the trade flows throughout uh, North America. I think that's something that's interesting. Yeah, that one's going to be pretty interesting because you are seeing a lot of activity um, uh, coming out of, uh, you know, the the cross-border uh, market right now, whether it's um, obviously that, that deal's in place now and um, they're working on combining uh, operations between uh, between um, the two former companies into one, um, but you you've seen other partnerships announced uh, with competing railroads, and uh, of course you mentioned um, you know railroad uh, and intermodal partners that already exist and are pretty robust. But I think you're going to see a lot of activity. I think there's a lot of a volume at stake, and then a lot of frankly potential growth that. Uh, that that folks who operate on the border um, see as a, as a real potential, um, pulling a lot of that uh, that truck traffic to the extent uh, we can uh, out of uh, out of the waiting lanes at the at the border gates and onto the rail, which you know I think is more efficient on so many different levels when it comes to uh, emissions, when it comes to congestion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I think it's going to be pretty exciting to watch here um, over the next. Uh, uh, year or so, and uh, you know, I, I think there'll there'll be a lot of um, excitement, a lot of good activity, and a lot of interesting partners uh, developing through this. So I think it's actually really healthy and something that um, you know we should all uh, look forward to seeing how it plays out. Yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, be great to watch. Um, so thank you yeah. so much, uh, Ian, for for joining us. If folks want to sign up for the the newsletter that you guys do, was it the the signal? Um, you know, how can they uh, do yep. that to be kept uh, up to date? Yeah, we've got the signal. We've got so many different resources on AAR.org. Um, you can catch us on you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, all, all that good stuff. So uh, certainly encourage people to check it out. And thanks for having me today. Look forward to talking again. Yeah, you bet. Thank okay. you. Have a great day. All right. Take care.